Welcome to another episode of a special podcast we like to call From the Archives. These are hand-picked sermons and sermon series preached in our church over the years by some of the pastors, elders and special guests we've had the privilege of listening to. We hope and we pray that as we listen to these classic messages, we'll be challenged in our walk with Jesus and encouraged to trust in him more and more. That being said, let's dive into the episode. Well, hello and welcome to the first ever edition of From the Archives. Um, Kind of taking time to look through some of the classic sermons that have been preached in Amherst Evangelical Church by some of the men that we've been blessed to open up God's Word for us. The first um, series that we're going to be looking at through um, From the Archives is a series we preached a number of years ago and uh, it was preached by a number of preachers, you'll recognise various people, Jonathan Thomas, Matt Bounds, myself, Sammy Davis, and it's going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, We did it under the title, Encouraged, and in this first sermon, Jonathan really is explaining to us what Christian encouragement should be. Um, Basically, his idea is that the book of 1 Thessalonians is a book of truth that is written to encourage a group of believers at a specific time in a specific place. So in this sermon, even though it's the first sermon in a series looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians, um, we actually spend most of the time in the book of Acts looking at the origin of the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church in Thessalonica. And uh, really, even if you don't get to listen to this sermon, this is Jonathan's main point that in encouraging one another, we need to be encouraging each other with the truth, the platitudes, the half-truths, the plain barefaced lies are not going to cut it. They'll maybe make us feel okay for a time, but what we really need to be encouraged by is the truth, especially the truth about Jesus. Now, I should point out that in this sermon, John makes reference to a video a number of times. Uh, the audio of that video isn't included, it's more of a visual video than anything else. But the basic idea in the video is that there are two guys in hospital, uh, one is blind, the other can see. The one who can see uh, spends his days lying to the guy who is blind about some imaginary world outside the window, as if that somehow is going to encourage him and make him feel better about his life. Um, John says that that is a wrong idea, picture of encouragement, that we need to be speaking truth to one another. So if he mentions video at all, uh, that's what he's chatting about. You can go and find it online. It's not really worth it. I'll be honest with you. Anyway, that's what this episode is about. Uh, I need to shut up and let John speak to you from the archives. We generally think of encouragement as not really telling people the full picture, not really telling them the truth. Think of the greatest scenes of encouragement you can think of in films. So you think of a young man who's had his legs blown off in the trenches, and so the nurse comes and says, it's okay, you're going to be okay, you'll be home with your mum soon, and everybody knows they're going to die. That's what encouragement is to us, is lying to a dying man. Or a child who you know isn't going to be able to do anything they want, but you haven't got the heart to tell them. So you tell them you can be anything you want. If you just try hard enough, you'll be anything you want. Because we think that's encouragement. Or perhaps we see a friend on Facebook putting down something that's blatantly sinful. 
a terrible action and we all just like, and we all just go, yeah, yeah, because we think that's encouraging. It's interesting, isn't it? Encouragement for us, even as Christians, very often is about not telling the truth, not giving the whole picture. I don't want to spend two months telling you to lie to one another. I don't want to tell you for two months, hey, guys, everything is brilliant. You're amazing. I'm amazing. We're amazing. The world is amazing. Isn't that brilliant? Because what happens? We're not amazing. I'm not amazing. Life isn't amazing. And actually, that kind of encouragement, it doesn't help. When you find that lump, or when that bill comes through, or when that relative dies, or when your job's on the line, people saying, oh, it'll be fine, it'll be okay, because you're so great. Someone like you could never lose your job because you're such, such an awesome guy. It really doesn't help. Christianity has a completely different idea of, of encouragement. And 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is all about encouragement because the church in Thessalonica needed a lot of encouragement. And the last thing Paul does is lie. The last thing Paul does is say, hey, guys, you're brilliant. Your situation is brilliant, and it's going to be brilliant. In fact, he tells them something very, very, very different because true encouragement can change lives. True encouragement can change lives. Um, John Maxwell said this, a word of encouragement from a teacher to a child can change a life. A word of encouragement from a spouse can save a marriage. A word of encouragement from a leader can inspire a person to reach her potential. I wonder if you've experienced that. Someone actually encouraged you with something that was true. Not a platitude, not an untruth, but actually they saw something you could actually do. They saw that actually you weren't what other people said you were, and they told you the truth, and that changed your life. I wonder if you've ever experienced those kind of words. Because we need to be encouraged, but we don't need to be lied to. We need to be given the truth. And the great thing about Christianity is, actually, the truth is encouraging. The truth is encouraging. Our concept of encouragement is based on the assumption that the truth isn't any good. Surely, as Christians, we believe that the truth is better than any lie, than any, any falsehood. Very often, we think of encouragement as platitudes, as ignoring the reality of someone's situation or not telling them the truth about themselves. Sam, we, in this week in the office, when we discussed it, said it's the pat on the back. That's what we think of encouragement as. But actually, Christianity has a very different type of encouragement. In fact, the Bible encourages people in two ways. The first way the Bible encourages us is by telling us who we really are in Christ. The fundamental way scriptures encourage us is by telling us the reality of who we are in Christ. So think about if we'd sung this morning, praise my soul, the king of heaven. And we'd sung those words, Psalm 103, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And we would have sung those words to one another. And those words of who you are, do you know what? When you're struggling in your marriage or you're struggling in your workplace or you're struggling with your own humanity, singing those words, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, I tell you what, those words have power. But when someone says to you, no, you're the best, you're great, you're awesome, don't worry about it. Makes you feel great for a moment, it's like eating a chocolate cake. Really gives you that buzz for a moment, doesn't it? But when that sugar low comes, it's a horrendous thing. But there's another type of encouragement in the Bible. Uh, Perhaps the other word is used, exhort. But that's encouraging someone to be who they can be in Christ. Not to be anything. You know, you can be an astronaut if you want to be an astronaut. But actually encouraging, exhorting someone to be who they can be in Christ. 
So there's someone, and they are struggling to forgive someone else. And you can encourage someone. Do you know what? In Christ, you can forgive them. In Christ, you can be free from bitterness. In Christ, you can live a life of freedom. But what do we tend to say? Oh, yeah, they deserve it. Yeah, you're okay. Oh, what happened to you was horrendous. So, yeah, 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 yeah. You carry on. Feel good about yourself. Christian encouragement is completely different. It's about knowing who you are in Christ and who you can be in Christ. And the Thessalonians needed both of those. Let me fill you in with the Thessalonian situation. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Let me tell you how the church was planted and how it began. Because this is important to know what life was like for the Christians in Thessalonica and what happened with Paul. The backstory is very, very important. Let me read Acts chapter 17 verses 1 to 10. When he had passed, and the they there is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So it's around 50 AD. This is Paul's second missionary journey. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are responding to the Macedonian call. They go to Thessalonica, and it's quite an amazing mission. Do you notice how quick it was? Have a look at verse 2. It says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days... Um, so many commentators say three Sabbath days, three Saturdays. This mission could have been as short as 15 days. Could have been as short as 15 days. As some think it might have been longer, but this is probably one of the shortest missions um, in the New Testament, but has amazing results. And it's great to see the short-term missions really can work. And verse 4, we see there were a pile of converts from different walks of life. But this led to opposition. The Jews really didn't like it. It's amazing. Uh, The ones who were waiting for the Messiah were the ones who rejected Paul when he preached about the Messiah who had come. It's as if they looked and searched the scriptures for life, but didn't realize that all the scriptures were pointing to Christ, and they missed it. So they weren't happy just to chuck him out of the synagogue. They got a rabble together. They got a mob together. They went to find Paul and Silas and to chuck them out of the city. They knew the church had been planted in Jason's house. And they went there and providentially, Paul wasn't there. But did you notice they drag Jason out? They make all of these kind of accusations like they're causing trouble all over the world. I bet Paul was a bit like, oh, that's impressive. (laughs) I haven't even been all over the world, but I'm causing trouble everywhere. But as well, they'd heard him preach that Jesus was the Lord, Jesus was king, and so then they twisted it. He's saying, oh, Caesar isn't the only king, and they made it political. 
And so actually what happened in verse 10 is that the brothers, so the new converts, this is amazing, the new converts said to Paul, Paul, you've got to get out of here. You've, you've got to go. And really, under the command of Jesus, that was the right thing to do. Uh, in Matthew 10, when Jesus was preparing the apostles for mission, he said this, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. And so off Jesus goes in obedience to Jesus. Uh, Paul goes in obedience to Jesus and to the New Thessalonican Christians. And it's very, very quickly. Well, what happens next? Well, it's very important to, when you read on to realize out of sight does not mean out of mind. Even though it may have only been two or three weeks, they'd had a huge impact. You know, meeting someone for a week or two can change your life, can change your life. Uh, our former pastor, Kevin Adams, was a confirmed bachelor. Went to America for a couple of weeks, met one woman called Gwenvire, and that, as Wynne said, ruined his life. Uh, Wynne's life, that is, not Kev's. It was great for Kev. Um, but they went... And they met just a short, short journey, a short, short time again, and it changed their lives. Think about the team who went to Burkina Faso um, earlier in the year. It has changed their lives. You just, they're always in the papers, dressed up now like women from Africa, trying to sell calendars. Um, but it has changed their life. Short-term mission, short relationships with people really can have a massive um, impact. But Paul had left very quickly, in the middle of the night, um, and really, that left quite a large emotional scar. Psychologically, this wasn't helpful. They didn't get to say sorry. Do you ever have that experience where you don't get to say sorry? We were um, out yesterday, um, and we made friends with this other family when we were in a very long queue. And it was one of those awkward things that we started talking. So everywhere we went then, we walked together. Never met these people before. So within an hour, we're like best friends, sharing life stories and all of this. And, and, and it kind of was like, what do we do? Do we just hang around for eight hours? I've never met them before. And then it came a point where we kind of got separated in a big crowd of people because Rasta Mouse was going mad. And so we got separated and we kind of felt guilty because we were like, we hang out with these new people for an hour. I feel like, you know, they're my new best friends and I want to live with them. And now we've left without saying goodbye. And it just felt really awkward. It felt really awkward. Well, think about Paul here. He in Thessalonians is going to say, I was like a mother to you. I was like a father to you. He's going to talk about all of this family love language, and then he's just snatched away. Didn't even get to go to Jason's house. Didn't even get to say goodbye. And, and worse than that, he had to leave because of persecution. He knew they'd been arrested. He knew they were going to have to go before the local authorities. And, and this left a massive issue. And Paul knew what was happening, because read on, have a look at what kind of people the Thessalonians were. Let's just read verses 11 to 14, um, Acts 17, verses 11 to 14. So he goes to Berea, and it says, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. This is kind of like going from Betus to Armenford. Now the people of Armenford were more, more noble character than the Betus people. And uh, so he goes there, and it says this, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Now listen to this. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, aggravating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on in Berea. How crazy is that? This Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica really had a radical edge. They weren't happy just to get rid of Paul. They wanted to get rid of Paul from Berea. Now, here's the thing. Paul has run away, as Jesus instructed, as the brothers told him to. He's gone to Berea, and now these guys have chased him there. What's he thinking? 
If this is what they're doing to me, what are they doing to my new converts in Thessalonica? If this is how they treat me, how will they treat one of their own? So now you've got this problem of the Thessalonians have missed their kind of church planting father and he's been snatched away in the night. And Paul, who has planted this church, has gone away and now he's, he's utterly consumed. No wonder Paul often spoke about the fact that he just had this consumption and this thought for the church all the time. And actually, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul fills us in on what happened next. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. Strangely, just to confuse you, I'm going to start the series in chapter 2. Uh, because I can do that. So chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse uh, 17. And today I'm just going to open up to you um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 13. And this tells us what happened next. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when it comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when I could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother, God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way, the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us. He's come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you were standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and the Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you may be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. Do you see that relationship? Do you see it? When you look at Acts, you see what happens. They went um, from Berea, um, they went to Athens, um, and, and he just couldn't stop thinking about them. Um, and so actually in, in Athens, it would seem that uh, he sent Timothy back to um, Berea, and by the time Paul had got to Corinth, Timothy comes and joins him, gives him this report, and so Paul is writing this um, from Corinth. And, and did you notice the word encourage in the passage? That's why I'm calling this series Encouraged. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 2. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you. And then look at the result, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. He wanted to encourage them, but they encouraged him. And actually, if you look forward with me to chapter 4 and verse 18, he says this, Therefore, encourage each other with these words. 
So Paul wanted to encourage them, he wanted them to encourage him, and he wanted them to encourage one another, because encouragement is important. You know, Paul often would write to people. In Romans 1, he says, I want to come to you so that I can encourage you. In other places, like Ephesians and Colossians, he writes to them and says, look, I want to come and encourage you, but I can't, so I'm sending someone else to encourage you. You know, there are people in our lives, aren't there, who are encouragers. Not people who come and tell us platitudes, but people who come and tell us reality, who ask us real questions and apply the real gospel to our real situation. You know, I've got a number of friends like that. One of them, um, I'll name James Sercombe. I worked with James years ago. He lives in Krakowell, now in a very posh church. Um, and, you know, we meet up, and it's just an encouragement. Why? Because he asks me real questions about my real life. He doesn't take kind of lying, hypocritical mask answers. He asks deeper questions. He's an encouragement to me. And we need those encouragements. And so Paul sends Timothy to encourage them. Because encouragement is vital. Hebrews 3 says this. But encourage one another daily. Daily. One of the things I want to try and do over the next two weeks, uh, two months, is encourage us to have a culture of encouragement. But not platitudes. Not platitudes. I want us to be able to say to one another, this is who you are in Christ. This is how you're ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. This is how you're loved. This is how I know your faith is genuine. I want us to be able to encourage one another with the truth. But I also want us to be able to encourage one another in the faith to be who we can be in Christ. And say, do you know what? You don't need to be like that. You don't need to be trapped by that. You don't need to be enslaved by that. Do you know what? You can be in Christ better than that. I want us to create that kind of culture. And Paul here, very quickly, let me just show you three things he encourages them in, just very, very quickly. Firstly, Paul wants to encourage them by telling them how much he cares for them. Do you notice it? Verse 17, he said, I was torn away from you. That word means orphaned. Um, It means bereaved. I think that the worst example I've heard of this lately was, was the grandfather who went in the sea to save his grandson, and he got hold of him, didn't he? But he couldn't hold on to him. He was torn away by the sea. And that's the the feel of this language here. In chapter 2, again, uh, Sam's going to preach my favorite chapter in here, where he talks, I was like a mother to you, I was like a father to you. You see, when he comes and he encourages them, he's telling them, I love you, I care for you. But he's not lying. He's not like the guy in the hospital bed telling a falsehood. He's telling the truth. Do you know, one of the most powerful things anybody can ever say to me is, I'm praying for you when I know they're actually praying for me. But but let's be honest, how many times do we say to someone, praying for you, but but we're not? Or thinking of you, but we're not. That is an encouragement. And encouragement is when we tell the truth. And look, verse 18. He says in verse 18 that I had an intense longing uh, to come to you he wanted to come to them but he says there actually that he couldn't come um, because of satan because of satanic opposition Um, and this is a very interesting one isn't it what what was that satanic opposition was it that satan literally stood in the street and stopped paul going back to thessalonica well when you look at acts it's pretty clear what it is it's the opposing jews isn't it they're literally chasing him from town to town He literally can't go back for fear of his life. And we need to realize that there is satanic opposition to the church. Really need to understand that. One of the ways we encourage one another is being real about things like that. 
is being real about what was happening. And, and when you read through, did you see the way he spoke about this is going to happen, this is, is reality? But the big thing he wants them to know here is that he loves them and that he cares for them. Verse 17, we made every effort to come and see you. Verse 18, for we wanted to come to you. And then he says this in verse 19 to them. This is lovely. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Those were true words for Paul, not platitudes. Not platitudes. Don't go home and Facebook people. You are my joy, you're my crown, unless it's true. Do you know what? When words like that are true, it makes all the difference. I can think of the most powerful words that were ever spoken to me. Okay, these are the most powerful. Do you want the most powerful words that will stay in my mind until the grave? That are etched in my mind and my heart. And it was by uh, the minister I grew up under, um, Irvon Roberts. And it was in the funeral of my mother. And I can still remember when he was giving uh, the, the talk, um, he went through the family, and this is what he said. And he said, Jonathan, you were the apple of your mother's eye. Let me tell you why that's so important to me. Because I know it was true. Because I know it was true. He wasn't just putting a platitude out there. I know it was true. And that makes all the difference. And do you know what? As Christians, we need to learn to tell each other the truth. We need to learn to love one another with an intense love. So that when we say to people, I love you, you're my brother, you're my sister, I care for you, I pray for you. People know that. That's where true encouragement comes from. Not from platitudes, but from, from truth. We need to do it. And he, and he says, doesn't he? He really wants to encourage them. So what he does in the end is he sends Timothy. Because that's, that's the only way he could do it. When I was thinking of this, actually I was thinking of Pete Westlake. There we are, Pete. Now, Pete shared something in the men's. I hope I can... Well, it's too late now. I'm, it's in public. Um, but I remember Pete was sharing in the men's day about when Amy, his daughter, went onto the mission field um, and it was a long way away, you know, difficult place to go to. Um, and, and it turned out that Pete thought, I can't go because he's a policeman and he's, you know, he's got to be careful with these things. And, and you could feel with Pete sharing that, the intensity in his voice. Because he would have done anything to get out to see Amy, and he did. But I tell you what, if he couldn't have gone out, he would have sent Stephen out. He would have sent someone because he loves his daughter, and he'll do anything to get to encourage her. And it's exactly the same with Paul here. He says, I'm like a mother to you, I'm like a father to you. He would do anything. I wonder, do we as Christians live like that? It's great to think that we have that role with missionaries, with Ed and Sarah, with um, other missionaries in the church, do we write to them and, and Facebook them and tweet them and send them letters like that? Or what about Christians who were part of our fellowship for so long but have moved away? Do we stay in contact with them and love them and encourage them and help them? Or what about the ill and the housebound in the church? Do we contact them and say, this is how much we, we miss you. This is how much we care for you. We need to have that kind of encouragement. But it's not just an encouragement of, I care for you. Secondly, it's an encouragement that persecution is normal. I'll say that again. It's a, an encouragement that persecution is normal. Let me give you two pictures of a local church. The first is a first world church. They own their land and they have a building. may not be quite big enough, but they have one. Uh, they employ around two full-time pastors. They get to advertise in the local paper. They can get funding from the government and tax back on giving. Um, social services even refer people to their outreach events. Uh, the media speaks well of them, particularly in things like food bank. And no one in the church, to my knowledge, has ever been beaten up for the faith. Let me compare it to another church in the third world. They have no land. No official building, 
Their pastor has another full-time job and looks after 12 church plants. The local news tells of how young people are being groomed by the church and taken away from the home. There's no funding or official status. Their services are routinely ransacked. Many have been beaten, including uh, children and young converts. Uh, Some families have lost loved ones to martyrdom or prison, and no one speaks well of them. In fact, there's talk going around the village that people are going to come with machetes and attack them. Of those two pictures, which is normal Christianity? Historically, biblically, the second. We are not living under normal circumstances. We're living in an era of peace and comfort in the church, which really isn't that well known in the New Testament and isn't that well known throughout church history. There are times when Christianity gets into power and that kind of gets really bad very quickly. But generally, actually, normal Christian life is is under persecution. And Paul is writing to them because they're being persecuted and he wants them to know this is normal. The last thing he wants to do is write to them and say, hey guys, it'll all be over tomorrow. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You'll grow. You'll be massive. You'll have a digital projector. He's not writing that to the brand new church, is he? He's not. He's writing. And and did you notice? He says in in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, look, you know, I've told you these things so that no one would be unsettled by your trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. You see, when Paul came to them, where had he been? Just before he'd been in Philippi. How did, how did it end for Paul in Philippi? He ended up in jail, in the lower cell, in stocks, being beaten. When Paul arrived, he arrived bloodied and bruised, and he spoke to them about persecution. You know, it's very important to understand that when we share the gospel, we need to share the cost of the gospel. Because in our country, you may not get persecuted, but there is a cost in terms of holy living. There is a cost in terms of certain friendships, certain lifestyle issues. And we need to be willing to share the reality. That is true encouragement. Very true encouragement. And so he goes and he says, look, guys, this isn't an illusion. This isn't something that's going to stop tomorrow. This is something that I told you was going to happen, and it does happen. And he tells them in in chapter 2, verse um, 18, he says, look, I wanted to come to you, but Satan stopped me. And chapter 3, verse 5, he said, I was afraid that in some way the tempter may have tempted you. And he's telling them, do you know what? You are in spiritual battle, and Satan is out for you. It's not just the Jews, it's Satan. Do you know, one of the ways we encourage one another is telling the reality of it. This week, um, we met with a, a, a minister. He's been a minister for a number of years in different places, and he was telling stories about how he went to one church, and two of the deacons were Freemasons. Um, and so they were going to give real problems for him. So he had a deacon's prayer. Do you want to hear his deacon's prayer? Make them, break them, or take them. That was his prayer for the deacons. Make them, break them, or take them. Uh, and there was a real heavy moment when he said, and within one year, both of them had died. Both of them had died. God had answered the prayer. It's got to be very, very clear. We are in a spiritual battle. The problem is we live in cozy Western Christianity. And we don't realize. We, we don't see it at all. And very often Satan infiltrates the local church through people, through individuals. Not, not so much up front, but just quietly. And we don't realize. The problem is because we're not being persecuted, because we're not having difficulties, we let our guards down. And because Satan doesn't come in a way we'd expect him to, we, we miss out on seeing what he's doing. And so he encourages them by telling them the truth. 
I wonder, was that at the start your idea of what encouragement was? Telling people you're in a satanic attack and you're going to be persecuted and it's going to get worse. I wonder if that would have been your definition of encouragement. Wouldn't you want to say to them, well, you know, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Woohoo! Forgetting that the very people I was said to were actually driven off into oblivion. But we like to rip scripture out of context. Why? Because we don't want to tell each other the truth, because we don't believe the truth. Hand on heart, do we believe that the gospel is better than anything else in the world? Hand on heart, do we believe that God is enough? That God is the gospel? And that no matter what happens to us, if Christ is for us, that is enough. Do we believe that? Do we experience that? Do you know there's a third and a final way, and I'll just share this with you very quickly, how he encourages them. He says, look, I love you. Your persecution is normal. I'm telling you the truth. And then thirdly and finally, he encourages them to Christian living. Have a look at verse 10. He says this. Now, verse 10, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may come and see you again and supply what is lacking. That's amazing. He prays for them and he wants to supply what's lacking in their faith. Um, and he's talking here really about the way that they're, they're living. And then he says this in verse 11. Here's my prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ make a way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. Just as ours does for you. And then he's going to go on to talk about how they live holy lives. His encouragement is that they would love one another. Do you know what? That's always the natural response to gospel Christian living. Do you know, one of the ways you can tell if someone is a Christian is how they love other Christians. Um, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says this, We know that you've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Here's the key thing. When we've experienced the love of God, the love of God transforms us. When we realize that Jesus suffered for us, so that we don't have to suffer eternally. When we realize he's paid the price for our sins and he's forgiven me all my sins. When I realize and experience that love, I look at other people differently. I no longer can look at you and say, well, you sin against me. How dare you? I can't say that to you because I sinned against God and how dare I do that? But then he sent his son to die for me. So how can I now hold your trifling little sins, which is nothing compared to the cosmic sin I held against Christ? You see, the glory of the gospel is we've been forgiven so much, we can forgive the little that others do for us. And do you know what? We can then live in a completely different way. Completely different way. And we can love each other in a different way. And do you notice that he said there, I want your love to increase and overflow. Overflow. What he's saying is this, is when we love one another as Christians, that overflows into society. And that's what people see. It was great, a couple of weeks ago, we sat down with a friend, and uh, not a Christian, and asking about how things had been when Beck had been ill last winter. And we were just talking about you, just talking about the church and the way uh, you'd been so kind to us, and you'd given us food, and you'd cared for us. And, and you could see this woman was just like, man, that is amazing. And, and, and your act of love to us overflowed into the life of this other woman, because she could see what you'd done. And do you know what? When the gospel comes and encourages our hearts, we love one another and that overflows into society. So let me, let me land this sermon. Where am I going to land this morning? 
Because you're all still upset with me that I didn't like the video, aren't you? That's, that's what you're going to go home with. I love that video. I'm going to put it on. I'm going to defriend him on Facebook and put it on there so he doesn't know I did it. That's what you're all thinking. Um, but, but let me tell you this, look. I want to get us to a deeper level of loving and encouraging one another. I want to show us something different. Gospel love. A gospel love where I can tell you who you are in Christ, no matter what you've done or what you're like. I can say you are loved, you are forgiven, you are ransomed, you are healed. This is who you are. And I want us to learn to encourage each other with that. Because do you know what that means? You can encourage people even when, humanly speaking, there's nothing to encourage you about them. Isn't it times like that? You just look at me and think, what am I going to say to John on the door? There was nothing in that for me. Well, you can say to me, hey, John, Jesus loves you. And it's true. You can encourage me with who I am in Christ. But also we can encourage each other to holy living. Encourage each other to loving one another. Caring for one another. Challenging one another. Because that's what we need. We need people who will be honest with us and help us. Um, very often in this series, I'll come back to one quote I learned when I did UCCF Relay. The big maxim they drilled into us was this. Encourage the good wherever you see it. And if you can't find it, look harder. Encourage the good wherever you see it. And if you can't find it, look harder. Guys, look to the gospel in one another. Encourage one another. And that will make all the difference. Well, that's it for another episode of our From the Archives podcast. We hope that you found it challenging and encouraging. And as always, we'd like to offer you a few quick next steps that you can take right now. If there's anything that you'd like to discuss or any questions that have been raised, please do contact us via email to contact at amfordchurch.com. If you want to know more about what's going on in the life of the church, make sure that you like us on Facebook. And lastly, why not check us out on YouTube, where you'll find additional teaching to complement our regular sermon podcast and our From the Archives podcast. Thanks for listening.